Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobet Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode 138. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobet Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Suspense. Mysteries. Crime. And thrillers. Welcome to the show. And our guest this week, well, it's a mini interview with our very own Mark Whiteman, whose brilliant book, Chasing the Dragon, second in the betting court, series is out on Tuesday. Now, we ought to say that last week we promised we'd have DG Hills on the programme, but it's been one of those comedy of errors where we've tried four times to have that interview. Yeah. And for various technical and diary reasons, it hasn't Oh, there's all out. sorts of things. Yeah. So uh, we've rescheduled that one. So, But luckily, we had a fantastic, it's shorter than our normal interview, but it's packed 25-minute interview with Mark Whiteman is yeah. really worth a And listen. the challenges of writing a successful to such a critically acclaimed first book, Waking the Tiger, which is available at 99 cents and 99p at the moment. It is indeed, and it's rocketing up the charts, so people are taking advantage of this. So if, if you haven't read it yet, go for it, because it won't be that price forever. <laughs> no, it won't. Well, look, we'll start our news this week with news that has really disturbed us a bit and has affected us directly and well you can take us through the timeline of this but we're talking about piracy yes so not the funny men with funny three-cornered hats in the sea we're talking about taking um intellectual property and giving it away or stealing intellectual property and giving it away uh, either for profit profit or for free elsewhere. So it's one of those things you just don't imagine will ever happen to you, a bit like uh, when someone steals money out of your bank. It's something that happens to other people. And we thought the same about piracy until last week. Um, it was actually one of our authors who alerted me, Jenny Ensor. She said, um, please see this website. Um, can you ask them to take down my books? Uh, so I had a look. And it wasn't just Jenny's books on this website. It's called Anna's Archive. There was... I, I think every single Hobet book was available on for download on this website and some of them in multiple forms. So uh, Lewis Hastings, for some reason, and Malcolm Hollingdrake as well, 10 plus copies of each of their books. Um, and as I dug further, I mean, you, you found out the entire number of works that they've Well, I, I'm on their front page now. And this is blatant. It's like um, they're sort of almost pitching themselves as a honest broker here sort of wikipedia for the printed word um they have a, a catalog this is what they say 111 million 135,191 directly downloadable fire files which we preserve forever 
<laughs> That's really scary. We and... currently have the world's most comprehensive open catalogue of books, papers and other written works. We mirror Sci-Hub, Library Genesis, Z Library and more. If you find other shadow libraries that we should mirror, or you have any questions, please contact us at anaarchivist at proton.me. And uh, then there's another thing where if you want to make a, a claim against them, well, look. Well, you, the, the, okay. so what we what what did we do? Well, immediately after. So that? I saw that if you want to make a claim, they ask you to fill out this very detailed form for each individual URL. Now that would have taken me a month to do. I just, I just, we just don't have time to fill it out for every single link. So I'm, you know, as I said, you know, Malcolm Hollingdrake's books, ten links per book. Same with Lewis Hastings. There are multiple links for some of our books. So I um, created a, it's called a cease and desist notification, which is a legal term. Um, It's a document where you are asking somebody to remove your IP that they've obtained through illegal means from um, the public domain. So I filled that out. I, I did some research on what this document should look like and I sent it to them and I was quite, stern in my covering email and i had copied and pasted all the urls of our books so that took three hours to do in itself and i told them they had 48 hours to remove the titles now 48 hours has lapsed and they haven't done it yet so i i honestly don't know what else to do i have not got the time to fill out that form well they're brazen about it so i've gone on one of their blogs this is dated july last year The focus of this project is illustrated by its name. We are aiming to contribute to the preservation and and, um, liberation of human knowledge. We make our small and humble, humble contribution in the footsteps of the greats before us. We deliberately violate the copyright law in most countries. This allows us to do something that legal entities cannot do, making sure books are mirrored and far and wide. Um... They're threatening to go into other forms of media, but books are their main focus. For crying out loud. It's That's, absolutely disgraceful. The fact they are openly admitting to breaking the law is quite shocking. Well, so, this is an existential crisis for a company like us. Yeah, so well, the, the bigger publishers do have books on there, so we've got to hope that they will do something with the might that they have behind them, which we don't. You know, they have legal teams... So Penguin Random House. And... Of course, of course, but they're not necessarily going to work in our, you know, we need to. Um... No, but they might bring down the website as, as a, as a, as a. Well, it's only going to happen more and more. I mean, you know, while people are motivated like this, you know. Okay, what do we do then? Well, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm just saying that people as motivated as this mm. to simply keep shoving up online and copying people's copyrighted material that you know they have all the legal rights to the IP to, they're just going to carry on doing it. It'll proliferate elsewhere, and it's the same attitude that um, that the the likes of Napster and people like that did with music. Mm. This is something that the industry needs to confront. But the trouble with the publishing industry is notoriously um, reluctant to support each other. Um. And, you know, this saddens me and it really angers me that people can behave like this. There's just completely... It's criminal, beyond criminal, really. 
there's the fact that they're blatantly admitting that. Absolutely. It's just, and the, you know, there's always... some so, sort of crusade and that, that this is some human, um, cru- you know, this is for the benefit of humanity. Yeah, that, that... they put a religious spin on it almost, haven't they? So... Yeah, absolutely disgusting. <laughs> so, uh, well, we'll have to... Um... We'll keep an eye on that. Yeah. Well, no, we, can, we need to do more than that, but we can't afford to obviously challenge them legally ourselves, so we'll need to join some sort of form of group action well, like you suggested just before we went on the podcast, contact the IPG or um, the Alliance of Independent Authors as well, because there's a lot of self-published authors on there. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, we'll um, we'll pursue this further. But uh, Aki is with us, and, and she is <laughs> watching a butterfly flutter around our room, um, largely because you've had the back door open the last this morning. Because this morning. it's so hot, it is so unbelievably hot. It is like it's like working in a in a laundry. At the moment, it's so moist in the atmosphere. It's, it's, it's very muggy. And, you know, it's one of the disadvantages in this country of not having aircon anywhere. It's horrific. Yeah, it's not great. Anyway, we have got a myriad. So we're of... falling out over flies, aren't we? We are. We are. Yeah. Because I, I need the door open, otherwise I can't concentrate. And you need the door shut because you don't like flies. I can't stand them. <laughs> I really can't. I've been going around with a tea towel, whacking them. Oh, he's been driving me nuts. Well, there you go. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Aki is now pursuing the butterflies, crouching beneath it and watching. Better not do anything to a butterfly. I know. Well, that's her nature, I'm afraid. Okay, so there are other news items, aren't there? That there we are, there about? are. Okay, so this is, again, an, an area of interest around copyright. So we're talking about piracy is one thing. But what about creating works using generative artificial intelligence, generative AI, mm. to create stuff that kind of... Uh, is not necessarily a carbon copy, but inspired closely by other existing works and authors. So is that, we talked about something a few weeks ago when Ian Rankin did an experiment. Yeah. Is that what you're talking about? That kind of thing, yeah. Someone had done an experiment that put some some of Rebus into uh, ChatGPT and then came out with... Uh, it's the, like an opening paragraph, It was it? the first three chapters of, of, a, of a potential oh, Rebus a whole, novel. yeah. Um, which is how fast it can it can work. It can it can turn out text. Whether or not it's any good is another question. Don't you dare, Aki. <laughs> Sorry. Aki, Aki is absolutely determined. She's oh gosh, she's doing. See, if we weren't doing the podcast, I would open the back door to let this butterfly out. But... Yeah, it's a red admiral, by the way. Uh, people are interested. Right. Um, okay. So the copyright licensing agency has developed a set of principles aimed at helping to ensure that generative AI is developed safely ethically and legally. The guidance states that if generative AI systems are to thrive and deliver trusted quality outcomes, which in turn will lead to greater adoption and use of such systems, supporting not just the UK's economy, but its aspiration to be a global global leader in AI, then it is imperative that any code of practice on copyright and AI should be founded on the principles it has laid out. These are compliance with copyright law, create a choice, fair remuneration and compensation, transparency, attribution, and authenticity. Under the first copyright law, the guidance states that the UK's gold standard copyright framework... (gasps) Oh, no, Aki, you didn't. Leave it alone. Go on. (laughs) Leave it alone. Stop it. You're a bad cat. Go on, get out. No, 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 no. Right, bear with us for a moment. We can't. Have, we can't have this. Get, have you got a cushion handy or something? You can. What to wax? Lo- the- <laughs> oh, oh. It's Aki. too late. It's too late. It's too late. 
I must, I'm afraid we've had a casualty on the podcast. Oh. Aki, you're a disappointment to us. You know, you don't do anything about the flies, but you do something to a butterfly. Go on. Well, they would. Scram. <laughs> oh, dear. Right. You would love a cat, uh, sorry, a fly catching cat, wouldn't you? Oh, I would. That's just not on Aki. I'm really disappointed in you. Anyway, um, this goes on and on, but you can see that uh, there's a great deal of... I mean, this is needed. This is needed, this sort of guidance. Mm. In terms of, you know, knowing where everyone stands, because at the moment there's a lot of ambiguity. And I know a lot of authors are using um, generative tools to speed up their process, for instance, or design book covers or stuff like that. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, we watched that with development with with interest. Um I know the government are thinking about it, but, you know, ultimately pirates will just do what they want to do with impunity. What uh, what good is copyright law? It's so flouted anyway. So there's that story. A um, couple more to, to mention. And this is an interesting one. I just thought this was a it was in the bookseller um, and it caught my eye. <laughs> Foils addresses shrinking fiction section claim. <laughs> now, this is focusing on foils. Uh, for those who, who don't know, I mean, they are a. Um, one of the, the bigger uh, retailers of books. Um, they have fabulously well put together books. I mean, the main one in Tottenham Court oh, Road is, is legendary. It's like heaven, that one. Floors upon floors of books. I mean, it's 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 the bookshop in London, isn't it, really? Yeah, I always try and get there if I can. <laughs> right, but they, they have small branches around the country. And this is about the Bristol branch. And uh, Joanna... Sorry, Johanna Thomas Kaur, we've talked about her in the last couple of weeks, literary editor of the Sunday Times, tweeted on the 6th of September that she'd heard a rumour that Foils in Bristol had got rid of its fiction section, uh, but that she couldn't couldn't believe it. And so, uh, especially when Nielsen figures for fiction sales mm. say that fiction sales are up. So she went into the store to check for herself. She found only a few tables of novels there. How sad and incredibly strange, she tweeted. The Times described the saga as the strange tale of the shrinking foils fiction section, also quoting a London bookseller as claiming that fiction had been slashed in their shop in favour of gift products such as calendars and book lights. Now Foils has clarified the situation to the bookseller, noting that Foils Bristol has a carefully curated selection of fiction. A spokesman said, Our Foils Bristol Bookshop is one of the smaller shops and therefore has a carefully curated section of fiction, including the latest bestsellers, perennial favourites, genre fiction and gift editions. The range of titles on offer in any bookshop is principally dependent on space. Sections ebb and flow with customer profile and at different times of the year, but fiction remains pivotal to the success of all Foyle's bookshops. It's, it's, it's interesting because... If you have a finite amount of space, which everybody does, but, you know, a smaller amount of space than um, you would like, you have you have to curate the stock, don't you? Well, and every... if your customers are coming in and buying self-help books because they're, I don't know, business people. I don't know where this bookshop is based in Bristol. So, say, for example, it was in the train station. Mm. You know, you know it would be certain types of genres because of the the, the types of people who pass through. Well, I would say, just looking at the photograph that Johanna Kaur put up on... It's not a small bookshop. 
And it has shelves. That was what I asked you just now. I said, does it not have shelves? It does. Is... It's That is not a small bookshop. No, it's not a small bookshop. They, they, I cannot believe they didn't have a, a general fiction as well as crime fiction and as they always do. Um, you know, yeah, that's that's that, bizarre. It, it, so I, I would have to go there to comment, I think, because it just doesn't make sense. No. Um, well, that's, you know, that's fascinating, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> It reminds me of a phrase in Spinal Tap when um, the manager of Spinal Tap, this is a film made in 19, or released in 18, 1984 about legendary uh, fictional rock band, and their manager, Ian Faith, is asked about uh, the fact that they're playing smaller venues mm. than they were on their previous tour. Does that mean their appeal is, you know, you know they're, they're, they're in decline? And he says, oh, no, 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 no. It just means our audience is more selective. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. That's a very good point. <laughs> you think about that little bookshop in Euston Station. You've been there, haven't you? Yeah. It's, uh, I think it's run by W.S. Smith. Smith. Yeah. That doesn't actually have... It has shelves, but there isn't a fiction A to Z shelf. They, no. ha- they have the classic little... One little shelf that has Penguin Classics. Right. They have the table of the fiction, and they have the... Um, bookshop selection fiction new fiction and new mm, non-fiction mm. and they have a i think they have a business section and non-fiction children's but they don't have i know they don't because i've noticed this they don't have an a to z of just fiction in there and i think that is because they know that people who pass through train stations they're looking for the latest stuff they're looking to be recommending so much time but they're not likely to be standing in the a to z section of fiction thinking oh <laughs> what, what you know like you might do if you go into waterstones yeah true uh final story then uh, again from the bookseller and this is um they picked this up from the wall street journal and this got my hackles going i'm in a i'm in a testy mood right oh, now you are spotify is ramping up its audiobook offering by testing a free audiobook bundle for subscribers according to the wall street journal the new offer would enable subscribers to listen up to 20 hours of audiobooks without having to pay an additional fee. This move signifies Spotify's efforts to become a world-leading provider of audiobooks, the newspaper said. Although some of the details are still unclear and the scope is yet to be revealed, subscribers are likely to be offered a broad range of titles for a limited time. WSJ says the offer will likely become available in English-speaking countries like the UK, the US, Canada and Australia. Right. Um, Well... I'm interested to learn what they mean to do in terms of compensating the creators of said audiobooks. Well, I think that um, this, because you have a contract with either directly with Spotify or with, like in our case, Findaway Voices, who have, who are now part of Spotify. They are, yeah. That it, it's not like they'd suddenly give us less money. Because they, I can't, think they, they can't contractually can't do well, that. Well, no, they, I mean, you know, they no, they're what they say in their contract, and I haven't looked at the specifics, but basically, because it's always changing the number of providers, mm. the platforms they're using, they drop, pick and up and drop platforms all the time. You see this every time I log in, they'll be, uh, we're no longer distributing to X, but we've added Y. Yeah. Right now, within that contract, I'm pretty sure the remuneration terms that each of those partners offers will they they reserve the right to change what those are going to be then we sign that so that 
Well, yes, exactly. But it gives them all the power to do one. And again, given that Spotify now own Findaway, um, you know, it's not going to be in the content providers and creators' favor, is it? Um, let's already, I mean, we've got two things, gripes about Findaway stroke Spotify already. One was the clause they put in a couple of years ago, which caught a lot of people out about using, giving Apple access to the vocal performances of those books that find a way to distribute to allow their AI narration system to learn mm, machine that. learning. So uh, we objected to that, but it was all hidden. Um, it's in the contract, but you know, uh, often when you're looking to, you know, use a platform like that, you, you, you kind of, you know, move on with it and just click. Yeah. Okay, fine. Get on with it. So there was that. But then also, after the Spotify takeover, just a few months afterwards, we previously, one of the reasons we used Findaway was that we they provided a shop front on our website for us to sell our audiobooks. And mm. they've taken that down now because they're pushing everybody towards Spotify. Mm. So we no longer have a direct sales platform for our audiobooks no, that we can we control could, ourselves. We could only do that if we come out of... Find a way. Exactly. So one of the things I'm going to do in the next week or two um, is that they have 42 distribution platforms uh, and partners is I'm going to go through that list. I've got all the URLs and figure out whether it's possible to actually do this yourself independently so that any future Hobeck productions will be a painstaking job will be uploaded direct. You might get better terms. I know if you uh, do that, you know, audible on, on its own platform you get more money yes than, no, than if you do it separately take, yeah so there is a lot to be said for that but i i don't subscribe to where you're coming from which is they're not going to do that they're not going to screw content producers i think they will i think they'll do whatever it takes to give them competitive advantage and the other thing is that they've spent a lot of money buying find a way it was 250 million dollar deal or so They've spent huge amounts of money on podcasting, which has flopped spectacularly, paying Seth Rogen something similar for a podcast that hasn't flown. Mm. Um, And Harry and and Meghan, or Meghan's podcast has been shelved, having cost them $20 million. They've spent a lot of money. They're trying to recoup it, and they'll try and do it to the little guys. I think that's what's going to happen. Look, we know already the way that Audible behave. It's not great towards content producers either no so let's not imagine that the big companies are going to behave well okay so let's see let's just just watch it with interest okay all right okay i'm going to come off my high horse we'll be in a better mood when we return after our interview Uh, will we (laughs) i will be in a better mood um still mourning the butterfly by the way uh aki's gone outside she's outside now yeah she's chasing a bird brilliant um she's still got it she's what how old 14 yeah, she's uh, yeah, she's coming up to. She'll be fifteen in January. Right. Anyway, still no excuse for killing a poor innocent butterfly. Uh, I'll be in a better mood when we've uh, spoken to Mark Whiteman. Mark, um, congratulations on the publication of Tracing the Dragon. Uh, just ahead of uh, or just tomorrow. Uh, yes, after this, after we release this podcast. I'll, t- I'll start again. That yeah, so basically we're talking as if it's the day before yeah, yeah. because that's Sorry, when the yeah. podcast goes out. I don't want you to think, what? No, no, <laughs> Tomorrow? No, no. Sorry, <laughs> get my brain unscrambled. Yeah. Okay. Mark, congratulations on the release of Chasing the Dragon. It's very exciting. Um, how do you feel about it now? 
Well, it's been um, it's obviously two years since uh, Waking the Tiger came out. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of work went into this book. So I, I'm very pleased with the way it's turned out. Very excited about seeing how it's going to be received. Um, so it takes Court on from um, where he was in Waking the Tiger. Not two years, but uh, six months in fictive time. But uh, yeah, no, very excited. Um, I'm, I, was, I was pleased to say, pleased with the way the book turned out. Um, the research all came together, and uh, and uh, I had a few ideas for the book actually, and I was trying to fit them all in, but it, I, I ended up going down this one route, and it, it was a much better book for it, I think. So that core idea is dealing with the um, somewhat surprising to modern. Um, minds i think is the, uh, the the huge impact that opium yeah. had in british colonies um you know it, it came as a complete surprise to me given our modern mores around heroin yeah. just how prevalent it was yeah it was huge so um, I, I wrote an article for um the cwa red herrings um magazine that's about Opium and how opium, the sale of opium really underpinned the whole of British colonization of of Asia. Um, it paid for the Raj, which you know the East India Company needed to, to manage Bengal in particular, but 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 other um, occupied areas in, in in India. And it was all paid for by opium. And um, I've been doing even since the book went to publication, I've been doing some more um, research into this, and it was absolutely huge. Um, at one point in the mid nineteen sorry eighteen hundreds, um, Britain under the East India Company had about one hundred and fifty thousand acres of opium under cultivation, and the majority of that went to China, and then in turn that led to the Opium Wars when the Chinese said, "No, we don't want this stuff coming into our country." Britain said, "Well, we're going to send gunboats, and you're going to have it, you know, whether you like it or not." And it was it's a, a, a kind of a lot of feelings about all this, you know, it was a very tragic thing. What, what, what happened and, and what happened to the Chinese people is infuriating the, the attitudes, but, you know, I'm, not, I'm sorry, just re sort of hashing the, the opposition to colonialism, I think, but some of the things that went on in those days that were, what dare I say, acceptable, um, I just seem bizarre nowadays. Um, but about 15% of that, that opium that came from um, India to China was diverted to the Strait Settlements, so to Penang, Malacca and Singapore. And um, in about 1930, the British, the colonial government in Singapore basically nationalised that um, and then took over the production and distribution of and licensing of, of opium. And it was a big thing. And it was a very lucrative thing as well. You know, we should never forget that, that a lot of this was driven by commercial greed, if you, you know, if you want anything better. Um, it, it's one of those things, though, that you the more you research, the more you, you learn. And um, while I wanted to write the book because I was aware of the opium trade in Singapore, I knew, you know, a bit about it, it was gone, certainly gone when I lived there, but I knew it existed. But it wasn't, you know, the, the kind of the depth of it and, and what, what the colonial government did to... To keep that that revenue flowing was, was mind boggling. It really was. Yeah, that is mind boggling. And, and, and you know, we're talking about modern mores, but in terms of your um, through your research, mm. has your attitude changed to colonialism as a concept? Because I think I, I didn't detect you taking an angle here within mm. chasing the dragon. I think you've you've avoided that quite successfully. In a sense, you've taken as a matter of fact you're reflecting life as it was rather than trying to make you know you allow your readers to 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 draw their own conclusions as opposed to 
hitting them with a moral judgment. Well, thank you for that, because that's exactly what I tried to do. Um, yes, my own personal attitudes have changed. I've learned a lot more about colonialism. I think growing up, I knew that colonialism happened, but it took, it's, it's one of those things. It's regrettable. But, you know, but the more I read about it, the more, as I say, staggered I am at what went on and, and, and trying to get my head inside the sort of the zeitgeist of those times. You know, how could this have been allowed to happen? But anyway, that's that's all very much personal. And um. Uh, I was keen, extremely keen not to tell this book as my, you know, take on things at all. Um, I wanted it to be very much seen as a natural consequence of what the characters would think and what the characters knew. Um, and there's a couple of aspects to that. So part of the book is about um, archaeology and about the history of the island of Singapore. Um, one of the things that there was a, a feature of colonialism, I think, was that they assumed Singapore started in 1819. Singapore, the island, didn't start in 1819. We now believe Singapore, um, as an occupied um, island, started probably around the 10th century. So it's got a long history. Um, lots of people have occupied Singapore. Uh, some cultures have occupied Singapore. And, you know, learning about that was was really fascinating. But again, what I can read now and what I can research now is not what Betancourt and those characters could have read and researched in the 19, in 1939, 1940. So I was very, very careful not to try and impose my knowledge, if you like, on the story, um, because that wouldn't have been right. You know, I had to go with what the characters would think, what the characters could know. So when this archaeologist chappy um, discovers things about, about the Singapore stone, what he could discover about the history of Singapore in, in 1940 is very different to what he could discover now because there have been numerous archaeological digs and things that have happened since. So, and the opium was exactly the same. So what, what did people know? What were people's attitudes towards opium in those days? How, you know, there's no point me um, putting modern, you know, political thinking on top of this thing because it just, it isn't right. You know, I've been very keen in every possible way to try and write the stories through the eyes of characters as they would have been. Now, of course, I wasn't alive then, you know, so I'm 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 taking a lot of this on, you know, based on my research. But but that was that was my sort of guiding thing is what would these characters do? What would they think about all of this? Not what would a modern day person think about this? So I'm glad that that, that came across. Yeah, so it's, it's, very much so. I was going to say, it's almost as if you're writing as an author from that time, in a way. Well, that's uh, that's quite a compliment. Thank you very much. Because <laughs> I, I do try and submerge my thing. It'd be very easy, I think. Um, I've spoken about this to a few people about research. People say, oh, don't research. Just get your story down and, you know, and, and then fill in some facts afterwards. But that, that just wouldn't work for me because... The research that I do is about the life and times of people, not facts. I'm not so worried about facts because, you, you, you know, it's right. You can fill those in afterwards. But but to in order to come up with the stories in the first place, I needed to know what what life was like for people. Um, and that's the, the kind of research that I do. And that's um, so in, in, in sense of, of writing like an author at the time. I mean, that, that's to me, that's that's a compliment um, because it's what I try to do. I try to imagine what life would be like if I were to stick my head out the window in 1940. What would I see? Not what would I see reading a, a book in the library now about the 1940s? Um, so that's it's good that it's coming across that way. Mm. And of course, one of the biggest challenges you've had is marrying your knowledge of Singapore the time you lived there casting back to a period when it was different from that period that you lived through and of course it's enormously yeah, different it's, now it's just yeah it's, 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 completely a, it's a, different it's an extraordinary modern metropolis now with um some of the most iconic modern buildings in the world and 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 so with every 
every year it seems some of the some of the things that you're trying to describe become even more obscure yeah and those that remain i think it's well, actually i'm going back to singapore in, in six weeks time um but i think the things that remain are kind of um gentrified and touristified you know so you can go down to chinatown but it's nothing like chinatown would have been the buildings have been preserved but but that's all i was very very fortunate um my family went to singapore in 1969 so when i was growing up um there was a sign of the old singapore i mean singapore had only been independent about five years by that time um so there's a lot of the old singapore still there there was it was being modernized there were there were high-rise hotels and things but but there was definitely a little bit away from the town center there was a very much the old Singapore, um, which has gone now. It's been built on. Um, so I, I was fortunate in that I do have memories. I don't have memories of 1940s, but I do have memories of, of the old Singapore and Singapore as it was, as a, a real Asian city. Um, so, yeah, so I, I do use some of that. So the thing about the durian, I remember durian sellers. You know, I remember all all, all that side of things. That Those are still the same, if you like. Um, actually, I don't think they'll still sell durian. They won't get them into the hotels. Um, don't know if you ever smelt it. It stinks to high heaven. It's horrible stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, so so there's that. So so I do have some genuine, real memories of things um, which I can use. So when I go to to read um, the newspapers, say from in the archives from the 1940s, I'll recognise what they mean by some of the things. I can say, oh yeah, just just about remember that. Um, photographs are great if you you know getting rid of getting hold of photographic collections of. of and all the time there's a chap called jerome lim who runs a, a site on on facebook and, and a, a blog called the long and winding road he's a singapore historian um and he comes up with some great pictures and you know some are just very old and you know not something i remember at all but there are some that are kind of in, when singapore is in transition that yeah oh yeah you know i can i can remember that so yeah so i think one of the things that i mean we were talking about the second book in a series and so mm. We're looking for some degree of evolution in some of the characters. And there are a number that return, clearly Betancourt, Max Betancourt, he's an inspector of the Marine Division, um, having been rusticated out of CID. And um, we are reintroduced to the woman who dominated his thoughts, other than his wife, mm-hmm. Evelyn Travaux. And uh, that is really one of the core threads through the whole story. It's... Um, mm-hmm. It's, you've, you've handled that relationship, I think, remarkably well. It's um, how tempted were you to? I mean, d- when you were writing it, did you were you resisting the temptation to bring them together closer than they get? Yeah, a bit. I was. Um, the, I mean, there's a story that kind of when I was, was planning waking the tiger. There's a story that predates that, and that and that's um, Anna Betancourt's wife going missing, and that has its own arc which isn't resolved yet um if that's giving away too much but uh <laughs> it's not resolved yet um and without that being resolved i mean the, the two things Betancourt and even Betancourt and anna kind of go hand in hand um so even if i wanted to resolve that and i think eventually you know it will resolve itself one way or another um it couldn't resolve itself without anna being resolved so um i had in my head a kind when I started off a kind of five year timeline, and I could see what was going to happen to Betancourt during that five years, and obviously Anna and and Evelyn are both part of of that arc. Um, so I think you, you yeah you, I mean you're right the the wood was a bit of a temptation just to go and throw some some throw some resolution in, but I was really keen that any resolution that came would be natural. 
would actually mm-hmm. come out of their lives. And, you know, and uh, sorry, even let's just come back to, to Singapore as the police coroner. She's got a whole episode ahead of her um, in, in her career and, and all sorts of things, you know, which sure Ben Court will get involved in. Um, so it wasn't a hard thing to resist. Well, it's, it's interesting because we, we actually had a chat about this the other day and I was thinking to myself, we're talking like these people are real. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. we were saying, you know, should should he ha- should there be have been some resolution? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, definitely will, but not, I think it would just be too pat, you know. Yeah. Of, I, didn't, I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. But it's funny, interesting you're talking about the, the characters being real because I'll see sometimes somebody will write and they'll talk about Max in a, in a review or, or something. Like, Who's Max? He's Betancourt, you know. I think everyone's Betancourt. You know, it's like it's like he's sitting next to me sometimes. It's uh, well, he's very, very real in my mind too. And, and you know, I've had the pleasure of narrating it and just. Are you going to say I have the pleasure of meeting? Him? No, no. Well, I feel like I have because I've been him. You I mean, have, I've, I've yeah. Been the voice of of Betancourt, and and that sort of, um, I suppose, the way I've pitched it is very much my voice in many ways, but it's the um, stentorious version of me when I'm asking questions of people and making demands of. Sergeant Quack or uh, whichever coolie happens to uh, to be conveniently nearby. <laughs> um, it, it, it's wonderful, but creating the rider cast of characters, those colonial figures that that you, you conjure so well, um, and the nuances of colonial life, the intrigue, the gossip. I, I love all that. Yeah, I mean, I think that was always going to be inevitable right from the very, very first planning of, of Waking the Tiger that I, I wanted everything about the books to be a dichotomy. You know, so on the very obvious level, there were British colonial rule and there were people who were ruled. Um, there were different races. And with the idea of Betancourt being a, a policeman, so he has an amount of license to go wherever he wants, and B, being a Eurasian, so to be between these two cultures and I, and I do have Eurasian friends and I've spoken to them at length about what it's like being a Eurasian and, and how you know your position in society depends on what people want from you you know um, so so that was all really important and that that then drove the rest of it I think and it drove the, the, the yeah to an extent the characters I, I didn't necessarily have all the characters in mind but I knew the types of people who would play parts in these stories um, Gemmel, who's now the coroner and was the, the police doctor before, you know, I just had an idea of, of a Gemmel. I don't, can't remember even what his name was originally, but there'll be somebody <laughs> like that, you know, who really wasn't interested in doing the doing well the job he was supposed to be doing. He's more interested in society and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, so I had those little ideas of what life would be like. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's the, been the biggest part of writing the books, doing the research. And as I said earlier, you know, when I do research, it's not about facts. It's about exactly these sort of things. You know, what was society like for everybody, not just for the expat colonials? No, no, absolutely. I, mean, mm. I think you get all the strata. And I think that it, anyone reading the book will um, will be hard-hearted if they fail to be moved by something that befalls one of the lower members of society in the middle of the book i'm not saying any more than that but i was really struck hard Mm. by this person's fate and um that's a tribute to you yeah it is that thing of they they are they come alive because of Mm. all the 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 depth and the levels of their relationships and their characters and Mm. it's fabulous um so i mean you you have a five-year arc and we're in 1940 at at this present time and what i love also another aspect of, of the book that is so brilliantly uh, evoked is 
the obduracy of that colonial government the, the the sense that you know they're rolling in a few navy ships into the into the harbor uh, into the area in the straits um and that'll be enough to keep the japanese at bay <laughs> and and you know it is that delicious thing of being a modern audience knowing that things ain't gonna yeah work knowing out the way. political outcome <laughs> yeah. but that presumably is where we're moving to if we uh, happily get to another book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're, we're in 1940 now. So if we move on, you know, maybe early 1941 um, and the invasion took place in 1942 and life was never the same after that. Um, so, yeah, so this um, and, and this is something that really, really, really interests me again. What what would life have been like for the for the the look for the Asian population of Singapore with Japan advancing. I mean, and, and you look back, but it's crazy. I mean, everybody knew Japan was advancing. Japan was in Malaysia, you know, a few hundred miles up the road. And they're going, no, it's all going to be right, chaps. Don't worry. We'll be fine. And it was just mental, you know, mental what happened. Um, and eventually they came, you know, so the, the Singapore government fortified the the seafront uh, and Japanese just came on bicycles over the causeway from Malaysia. You know, that's how they invaded. It, it, was, <laughs> it was, it was daft, but anyway, yeah. So, so, but the, there was um, a lot of um, political nuance about that time though, because the Chinese population of Singapore were very anti-Japanese and there was a Japanese population in Singapore as well, which, so, you know, that caused issues. And, um, but the, the, the Chinese population's prime loyalty was to China, and China had its own issues with, you know, the Japanese, sorry, Japanese invasion there as well. Um, so it, it was a bit of a mix-up. The whole the whole thing was a bit of a mix-up. And um, again, I'm very keen to see how Betancourt and his his uh, fellows actually deal with all that, um, because I have an idea that when the Japanese arrive, as far as Betancourt's concerned, it's just a different set of colonial yeah. overlords. No, that's interesting. I, I it... There were two things that struck me when when you were talking about that because and, uh, it's very interesting. Modern historians, some are now describing World War Two as not being nineteen thirty nine to forty five, but being nineteen thirty two to forty five mm. because mm. of the Japanese invading uh, pockets mm. of of China at that point, and then a much wider invasion a little bit later on, mm. and that conflict was rolling through. So technically. You know, they're now pointing to that as being the start of World War Two, which is an interesting new uh, approach. But also I've been listening to um, quite a few podcasts recently on the subject of, of Japan's role in the war and how philosophically they thought that all of these Asian nations that they were invading would welcome them um, because they were, uh, well, ostensibly much, you know, in appearance sake a lot closer to, um, you know, the native peoples as opposed to the European colonial masters that they'd been subjected to hitherto. So they were very surprised when they didn't get um, the red carpet. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, uh, so it's going to be very interesting writing about that. I'd, I've never wanted to write a war story. So if Betancourt, if we're going to see Betancourt during the Japanese occupation, I'll have to do it in a way that um, avoids all the war bits. Um, I'm uh, I'm a hardened pacifist. <laughs> I don't right. like war. I don't. I don't like um, even researching it and talking about it. But I am very interested in the social life of what Singapore was like under Japanese rule and how it differed from rule under the British. And uh, 
And then, of course, it's all going to end in 1945. And, and then what happens? So, yeah, then got the communist emergency and, and everything. I think, you know, just come back to something you were saying there about about not changing history, but, but, but reassessing history. We do tend to think of history as being a series of events and it's not really, you know, if you when you start to dig down in things, well, the events are much, much longer in duration than, than we can credit for. But so I was doing um, research into the opium wars in, in China when, when Britain invaded China. And you could say they happened over two years, you know, the 1840s, but they didn't. It was right 200 years in the making. You know, if you follow it right back from the East India Company first going into India and all the things that happened after that, that were all causally linked. Um, you know, everything actually is joined up, um, which makes it hard to write about because uh, 200 years is quite a long time to write about, uh, write a story about. But uh, yeah, no, I think you you you, um, you impart that information very very, um, you know, I would say distinct. You know, with um, you distill it very very quickly, and uh, you know, give us enough as readers to to mm. appreciate you know the background to it. But uh, you know, it's all for our living in that moment and you're living through the through the characters and i think you do that brilliantly so we are extremely proud to be publishing chasing the dragon this week um i'm very proud to be its voice <laughs> uh which will be out a little bit later i'm just finishing the project now so it'll be up as soon as we can but uh, mark thank you so much for joining us oh, thank you and thank you for publishing the book you're welcome it's just a shame I didn't ask him a random question. Well, I mean, we were going to ask DG Hills a random question. And incidentally, have you got a random question that you're going to ask? We can ask the audience. Okay. Well, my random question I was going to ask DG Hills, which I should have asked Mark Whiteman, was when you can't sleep, what do you think about? Hmm. You have a technique for trying to sleep, don't you? What What is it that you do? Um. Well, various... Sheep or something? Or no, mm. Sheep. <laughs> There's various things I try. One is I imagine I'm skiing. Right. Another is I'm playing tennis. But my most recent one is I actually use this at the dentist as well. So last week I went to the dentist for I had an emergency appointment, which took two weeks to get. But anyway, and um, I had to have a filling removed and replaced. And so um, I decided to use my sleep technique to distract myself and it worked. So this is where it's a game I play in my head. Well, you think of a category, so for example, um, actors or authors, and you have to go through the alphabet, starting with A, and think of people with that, a name with that letter. If you get a double-barreled name, then it's double points. So for example, if I do tennis players, you could start off with Andre Agassi, double points. Beyond Borg, yeah, yeah, yeah. double points. Wincy Willis, yeah, I know the thing. Wincy Willis didn't play tennis. Okay, right. But I played the game where, you know, and Wincy Willis would always bring the house down if people were doing celebrities. So, yeah. Yes. So, and it, and it totally worked at the dentist. It's fine. And it does make me sleep. I never get to Z. Mm. So what? that was the random question anyway. And we know what you do. Well, I know what you do. What do I do? The cricket thing. Oh, yes. I, I, <laughs> I have a trigger phrase which helps. And it's really weird. Um, it's a fastball outside off stump. Yeah, you I don't know why. I, you recite that in your head and you're asleep. Yeah, it it works for me. I don't know why a fastball outside. Of, I mean, I've only probably bowled three in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, no, that's that's true. Um, listen, the week to come, you 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 are so flat out busy at the moment. Yes, um, because I've uh, recently started working with um, independent author Rachel McLean. That's taken up 
um, a good chunk of my time. I'm also still doing sort of copy editing jobs on the side and Hobeck as well. I've got a meeting in Warwick on Wednesday, which I'm looking forward to. Yep. Um, I have a significant thing on Wednesday, which I'll talk about next week if it goes successfully. Yeah, I would say yes. Just just hold off. But you do. You have something happening on Wednesday, but we're not going to tell you what. No, no, no. No, I, I'd, I'd rather not. I'm, you know, that would be asking to, you know, jinx it, I think. Yeah, so no, no more. And because we, we, we're publishing Chasing a Dragon on Tuesday, so of course we've got that as mm-hmm. a big uh, focus of our week. So here's a, here's a question. I'm going to put it out to, you know, out publicly. So I had a message from my son, Ben, yesterday. He's been chivying me to try and go out on a golf course this week and he because, you know, it's the only way he can afford to play at the moment is for Dad to pay for it. He wants to play on Tuesday. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, I've got a big day on Wednesday. I'd rather not really do it. And we've got a book launch on Tuesday, so it's really not appropriate. So I think I'm going to have to ask to postpone. Yeah, Monday. so Monday we have a podcast interview. Oh, who is our guest next week? Our guest next week... Um, is a writer called Stacey Thomas, and she's written her debut novel. Um, I see, I forgot what it's called. <laughs> I just looked it up. We'll have to find out next week, won't we? Well, let me not look it up now. <laughs> well, I don't know. Is it Stacey with an E? Um, it, well, I, have, I still have it open. The Revels. The Revels. Stacey Thomas, author of The Revels. I am sorry. I did look it up. Um, I'm re- I'm looking forward to this because it's um, historic, historic fiction. Oh, beautiful cover! It is. It's be- stunning, isn't it? Wow. And it's and it's sort of gothic and witchcrafty, so oh, I think it's going to be a really cover. good interview. Wow, what what period is it set in? Renaissance, I think. 1645, mm. Civil War. Civil War, sorry. Yeah, not necessarily Renaissance, but the Pendle I... Witch Trials. Oh. Right, we're right up the street there. Yeah, okay. so we and it's actually quite appropriate, isn't it? We publish a historic crime novel this week, and next week we're talking to an, another author of historic fiction. Brilliant. Um, so yeah, busy week ahead. I'm uh, I'm also writing again. You are. He's in the flow, everybody. Which is a great feeling, actually. It's been months. I've really had dried up as a, a creative. Yes, I would say. It's more than months it's been a very long time but you've been doing it steadily every day and what I like also is when you've written a chunk of text or revised a chunk of text because we we should say a fair amount of this book has been written previously in bits so some of it is revisions and you come into the kitchen with a glint in your eye and I, I I might be completely absorbed in some work but I know okay it's time to listen to what you've written. Yes, we've been calling it Listening with Mother, um, <laughs> as you are indeed a mother. Um, and I've been reciting it to you just before lunchtime. But it's, it's actually an important part of the revision and structural Absolutely. process. Because, partly I, because you're reading out loud, so you're hearing it. So this morning I revised, it was largely revised rather than totally fresh, Yeah. chapter three. Oh, of, so we haven't done Listen with Mother yet. No, Love, Lies and Loyalty. And I'll tell you what, as we're... Sitting together and got the microphone. Oh, really? You're gonna, you're gonna? I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'm just <laughs> going to give you a few lines. Go on then. Chapter three. Rafe Edwards lifted his glass, made a toast, and declared war on Germany. He felt a swell of pride as he congratulated. He was congratulated by the three men he'd enjoyed an agreeable lunch with: cold cuts served with vintage Chevalier Montrachet, followed by a generous measure of a good single malt. This was a most civilized way to join up. 
No being barked at by a recruitment sergeant or being herded into line to see the M.O. for him. No, this was much more like it. Ooh. There's a little taste. Is that the first public outing of any of your writing? Except the Christmas stories. Uh, from that novel, yes. Yes, from that novel. And I, I, you know, we were talking about first lines when we, we took over the UK. Uh, oh, we did, didn't we? Someone asked us, what's your best, favourite first line? And, um, well, I didn't want to sort of brag, but I, I'm really fond of that line about somebody making a toast and declaring war on Germany. Yes, it is a good one. You need, what, The thing about first lines, it's got to have impact, power, but also intrigue. Yes. If you could get all of that in one single sentence. That's which is what I tried to do there. And that's the, probably the first line of the whole book I wrote. That was the opening chapter. But the focus has switched to, um, that's Rafe Edwards we're talking about there. But his love interest, Violette, um, who is now the main protagonist in this book. Mm. It's her story, really. Yeah. And and But I'm intending to write, at some point, a series of books which features them both and their on-off um, relationship. Yeah, and you've actually already written some sort of, not novellas exactly, short stories. Which mm. You could use to entice readers. You're right, actually, yeah. I mean, I did this exercise, and this is something that I thought would be interesting to do, was to write a same scene from three perspectives. So I wrote a dialogue, no attributions, just the two of them speaking, and just the dialogue bit. I remember, yeah. Then I wrote a fictionalised version from Rafe's point of view, making him the point of view character from the chapter, using the same dialogue I'd written. So no changes, but the connective tissue, the attribute, you know, the observations of Violet's reactions and his behaviour and all that stuff from his perspective and then I wrote it from Violet's same dialogue again at the spine of it and then you know same process what she observing of what he's doing and how they're reacting to each other and it was a really interesting thing to do. It's actually a good exercise so this whole argument of can you write as somebody of a different age, gender, race, mm. or whatever. But that exercise allowed you to see a situation, a scene, quite an emotional one, mm. from the perspective of the woman and the man in the situation. And I think it's it's very good practice for a writer to do that. Yeah, and, and if I remember rightly, the context was they were having dinner together. She's found out she's pregnant. Yeah, that's right. And he has been suspicious of... She was. They're both in military intelligence. They're both given tasks to do by their spy masters, or whatever. And she had some side thing to do with an American mm. um, official, and had to go to Portsmouth and do some official. And at that point, Rafe suspe- suspected that she'd fallen under the Americans' charms. Should we put it that way? So he's going from a perspective that he doesn't think the kid's his. Yes. And this is going to be something that drives forward that story and from the perspective of a woman you tell the 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 man you're with that you're pregnant and his initial reaction is to doubt you you just can't i can't even well partly that's because he's (laughs) he's a coward anyway in many ways you know emotional coward yes he's a physic he's physically brave in many ways but he's emotionally stunted in to a degree and adulthood as indeed from this scene here you know he's chosen to join up in the most agreeable way possible over a nice lunch uh, and join military intelligence rather than go into one of the traditional branches of the armed forces because, you know, doesn't fancy... He gets seasick on a punt. Um, 
two of his friends have got shot down already, so he doesn't fancy the RAF. And uh, the army is all about polishing boots and too much marching for his liking. Hmm. Besides which, he got a rash from wearing a CCF uniform at school. <laughs> so he's chosen to do something, being a gentleman spy is how he envisages his war to be. Mm. And um, at least initially, that's how it looks like it will be. But uh, from her perspective, the reason that she's joining up is completely different, much, much more personal. And, um, well, I won't say any more, but um, I'm, pr- I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, so it's a work in progress that is progressing again. It is. It is. Okay, we'll wrap it up there. We'll look forward to speaking to Stacey Thomas next week. Uh, but between now and then, while we fight the pirates with our cutlasses... Ooh, ah. Yeah, if only. Um, we will... Um, what is a pirate's favourite letter of the alphabet? R. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget, I've written a story... <laughs> set in Cornwall and piracy was part of that so um, that's another story that to be dealt with at some point okay so uh, look thank you so much for joining us don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from um, please take advantage of Waking the Tiger being 99p at the moment and indeed consider buying the brilliant Chasing the Dragon which is out uh, the day after this podcast goes out and thank you to Mark for slipping in and uh, talking us through the process of going back to Singapore and getting the historical details. And he's actually going back in real life, isn't he? He is, absolutely. So, been a pleasure to speak to you again. My name's been Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And uh, we wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.